continuation of what we did in Sunday school from recording from the past that had to do with the previous parables, which were the lost sheep and the lost coins. Now we have two lost sons. So we have more slides than normal because we're redoing something from 2009 so that it can be in an updated format for other people to hear and learn what God has said in this section of Scripture. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness, for showing mercy and grace to lost sinners. May you touch our hearts so that we see your love and see your kind intention to save the lost and feed your sheep. Help us to do that as under-shepherds in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the sources that I uh, came up, became aware of over 12 years ago came from Kenneth E. Bailey, so I want to acknowledge that. As, and he spent his life living in the Middle East, or most of his life, and understood that the cultures of the small villages, the honor-shame society in those parts of the world have been the same, and they still are. And so to understand Luke, to understand the parables, we need to understand that in their world, shame was to be avoided at all costs, and honor was the most valuable thing to have. And to that end, I want to show you, by God's grace, what we can learn from two lost sons, two lost sons, the prodigal and the older son. Now, in the context, as we saw this morning in Sunday school, the scribes were grumbling because people were coming to Jesus and he dined with them. In that world, if you welcome someone into your home, if you sit down at the table with them, you convey honor and you accept them. That was the context. And so, therefore, the theme is this. We saw it in Sunday school, Luke 15, 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And by the way, the 99 righteous people don't exist. So that'll give you a good starting point to understand this. Now, we'll go through this starting with Luke 15, 11, and 12. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now, according to Deuteronomy 21, 17, the older would receive two-thirds, and the younger one-third. So the younger makes a very unbelievable, disgraceful, horrific demand. It's imperative. Give me. Imperative. Not only did he demand his one-third, he demanded and received the, not, the, not only the one-third of the wealth that had been accumulated by the small peasant family for generations, he had the right of disposition. We know because he goes and wastes it. 
So by making this demand, the younger son said to his father, I cannot wait for you to die. The shamefulness and the horror of such a thing is so profound that Kenneth Bailey and several of his works, including The Cross and the Prodigal, said that this is unheard of in Middle East villages. In fact, most of his life, he said, he'd only heard of it twice, and it was so awful, it just would destroy the whole family in the village. So this is an unbelievable demand. And the cross in the prodigal is revised and um, expanded in 2005, so that's still available. So the estate here, Usia, it's only used two times in the New Testament, and those are both right in this section. Usia would be the, the substance, what you need. In fact, earlier in the Lord's Prayer, with a prefix, the same term is used, give us this day your daily bread, our daily bread. But there is the sustenance. Bread was everything, artos. That's what God gives as provision. We talked about that a little bit earlier, that you cannot just think about, well, we'll go to the grocery store and get more. This means God is taking care of us. The other term, bios, wealth, you know, it's assets, property, care. So not only did this scornful, dishonorable younger son demand his share and the right of disposition, he dishonored his father, he dishonored the village, he dishonored his family and said, I would rather have you dead. I want what I've got coming. I'm going to get away from here. And so that's what he did. Now, let me lay this out with some cultural considerations to help us understand the prodigal. The father's expected reaction is to be outraged and punish the boy. As I said, this demand shamed the family throughout the village. He disrespects the, the demand, disrespects the accumulated wealth and status of the family in the village. And so the father grants an unbelievably horrible demand. God allows the sinner to go his or her own way. He allows anyone that doesn't want to serve God. You can take off. We find out as we study this whole of Luke 15 that the father in these in this parable represents God in Christ seeking sinners and saving them. But many people just run away, go their own way. The Father is God in Christ coming to reconcile sinners. Now, over many years, we've all seen people with a lot of privilege, loved by their family, run away, scorn God, scorn their family, and go off however they see fit. God allows that. But the end is very bad. But in this case, we're seeing how lost this 
younger son really was. Another slide on cultural considerations. It was the older brother's obligation to defend his father's honor. It was the older brother's obligation to act as reconciler between the father and the younger son. And so in this village in the Middle East, honor had to be preserved. You lose that, you lose your status, and you lose everything. And so the older son needed to step in and try to solve the problem. But as we see, he doesn't do that. Both sons failed to even try to live together in unity, which is a serious breach of the family's honor within the village. Here are some other things I would like to say about that. The father gains shame by granting the request. Can you imagine living in a world where shame was to be avoided no matter what? And this father allows his status in the village, his reputation to be shamed, drug into horrible places, and allows this to go on. The father takes the one thing that was to be avoided at all costs, dishonor and shame. How does this apply? I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians. We know where this is going. God bore the shame so that we could become honored sons and daughters. Now, where do we get the term prodigal? Luke 15, 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, which would be his one-third, and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And I'll unpack that a little bit with some of the Greek. We have a little better idea of that maybe in our day because people suddenly get a huge amount of money. Maybe they get a, a they become a movie star or a, an athlete. And how long does it take to lose a whole lot of money? It doesn't take long at all. It can be all gone. But in this case, this was not just money or assets, it's the accumulated status and wealth of the entire family that took generations to have. In the world that I grew up in, it'd be like gambling away the family farm. Some have done that. <coughs> the word squandered Diascoprizo means to scatter, abroad, disperse, used of chaff blowing to the wind. When you harvest the wheat, the chaff blows away. It's worthless. You don't try to save it. So this is used metaphorically, meaning dissipate, squander, waste. It's all gone. Usia, essence, substance. It's used in the Lord's Prayer for daily bread. You know, if you have a relationship with your father and your family, you have a farm, you have your sustenance. 
This young boy says, no, I don't want any of that. I want you to die. I want whatever I got. I'm going to run away with it. So loose living, a sotos, the adverb, profligately, riotously. And there we get the noun form, prodigal. The prodigal is the one that wasted it all. He didn't care about his family. He didn't care about the honor of the village. He didn't care about anything but getting his share, running away, and it goes away quickly. Whatever it was he did, he lost it all. There's no emergency here. The only emergency was, I want to get away from my family. I can't stand this anymore. The prodigal in a foreign country, Bailey says, I think this is right, would try to gain status by his extravagant use of money. One-third of the family wealth. So you go somewhere else, you're an honor-shame village, you go somewhere where you have no status, but what do you have when you get there? Money! How do you gain friends somewhere else? Well, look at the money, you throw it around, look at me. People do that nowadays, but it's not in the same honor-shame setting that they had. But it doesn't take long for it all to be gone. Let's go to the next verse, Luke 15, 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe, literally, powerful famine occurred in that country. And he began to be impoverished. The word for spent everything implies to no benefit. Lots and lots of money can go away very quickly to no benefit. It takes generations to accumulate wealth for family. It takes moments for it all to come to nothing. Powerful is a word uh, that's not totally common, but it's iskuros. And that sort of famine, according to Bailey, in the Jacob and the Prodigal, another book, is an unspeakable horror. In some Middle East villages, when they had such a famine, it was just so bad that you would hate to describe it in a sermon. Just horrible, horrific, unspeakable. And so let me cite something that um, I got from Kenneth Bailey's work. I'll cite it directly so we can explain this Kazaza ceremony, cutting off. He says this, To discourage any thought of committing this heinous offense, the community developed what is called the Kazaza ceremony. Any Jewish boy who lost his inheritance, says Bailey, among Gentiles faced the ceremony. If he dared return home to his village, the ceremony itself was simple. Fellow villagers would fill a large earthenware pot with burned nuts and burned corn and break it in front of the guilty individual. While doing this, they would shout, so-and-so is cut off from the people, from his people. From that point on, the village would have nothing to do with that hapless lad, unquote, Kenneth E. Bailey, Jacob and the Prodigal, another word. And in an honor-shame world, you go back 
That's worse. They're going to have the Kazaza ceremony. I'll be utterly shaved in an extended clan, small village. Everyone knew everybody and everything. Reminds me of my youth on the farm when we had a party line and a cord board in a little town and the person running the cord board to hook up the line knew everything that ever happened in that little community. And it was like that there because word of mouth. Everyone knew what this lad did. They, they knew how shameful it was. They knew what happened. And if he went back, everybody would know how horrible he really was. Let's go to verse 15. And it says here, And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Swine. He's Jewish. I don't want to eat my father's bread. I don't want to stay here with this family. So he runs away. Famine comes. And he joins himself to a citizen. Gentile citizen. Obviously, he wasn't Jewish. He wouldn't have swine to feed. And it says he kalao tat kalao Attached himself to a Gentile, which means join or cling. There are a number of uses of this. I, I looked it up in my um, Greek search engine, and it's used 12 times in the New Testament, 7 in Luke-Acts. It's used of dust clinging to the feet of someone who would shake it off. It means it was used literally of Saul of Tarsus after his conversion. He wanted to be joined and they said, no, we don't want him joining us until he realized he was converted. He was an enemy. It talks about a man being joined to his wife. Or conversely, a man joined to a prostitute. It's horrible to be joined in that way, unless it's something good, to be joined to the Lord by faith. So he glues himself to a Gentile, and the Gentile can't get rid of him. This still happens, by the way. And I mentioned when I preached on this 2009 that we'd been to Barbados to preach, and someone did that to my wife. This guy said, oh, i got to help you carry your package to your taxi, and they won't give you the package that they're carrying until you pay them. Okay, go away. Give me my package. It happens other places. So evidently, the citizen, the Gentile, thought of a way to get rid of of this Jewish boy who wouldn't get, go away. Go feed the pigs. Well, hoping he wouldn't do it and then just he'd be done with it. So you go home, Kazaza ceremony, joined to a Gentile, begging like a horrible, scorned, dishonorable rebel who ran away from home. And now he's sent to feed the pigs. Can it get worse? Yes. Luke fifteen sixteen. And he was longing, the word here is lusting, literally, lusting to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. See, if you run away from home, 
and you think you can buy your status somewhere else, when the money runs out, the friends run out. They'll take off. Now you don't have anything. You can't go home. You have nothing to buy friends with. Now you're being sent to eat pig food because people literally starve in a powerful famine in such a world as they lived in. So this Jewish boy, the younger one, was thoroughly disgraced, lusting to eat with the pigs. I'll tell a story about that in a moment, but let me share some things that I had in a sermon in 2009. Here are some things that happened as far as this disgraced son. He disgraced himself by asking for his inheritance. He disgraced himself more by selling it on the cheap to get money and leave the village. He disgraced himself by squandering money to Gentiles. He disgraced himself by becoming a beggar among Gentiles. He disgraced himself by feeding swine and wishing to eat with them. The irony here is amazing. He broke fellowship with the family where he had everything he needed in their world. And now he is breaking bread with pigs. You don't want to break bread with pigs. Believe me, I grew up on a pig farm. And one of the jobs that I had as a teenager was one of the neighbors would hire me to do their chores so they could go on vacation. And one neighbor was actually a relative, and he was known for being very frugal, and he didn't want to give the sows much to eat because the sows are there for other purposes besides becoming fat. And so he said, they only get two buckets of sow chunks. Sow chunks are very hard and uh, only for sows. So I'd go over there to feed the sows. And they were so hungry that had they got out, they probably would have killed me. So I'd go over down the fence because they were jumping on each other, dump a little bit in, and they'd go running over there. And while they were going crazy, dump the rest and get out of there. And this last spring, my second youngest brother, David, was up from Arizona fishing. And he told me that story because I must have took him with him one, with me one time. He remembered it exactly the same way. You wouldn't get in there to eat with those pigs. They'd win, you'd lose. Pigs will scour around and eat about anything. So the pods did not have value to feed a human being. He couldn't have survived on them. Whatever they were, they wouldn't feed him. Pigs scour, rut, dig holes. They're not exactly picky about what they try to eat. So, what are we going to do? Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, now this is self-talk. I mentioned that a little bit as we discussed Sunday school. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread but I'm dying here with hunger. So that's the center part of the construction. Bailey sees uh, Luke's construction as a point. It goes down, down, down to the middle, 
and it comes back up the other way. This is the middle. In the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, the middle part is when the rich fool says, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger bars. That's self-talk. So this we know, if we're careful readers, is where it's going to turn a corner. But it's still very, very bad for him. He literally came to himself. He didn't come to his senses. He came to himself. and was thinking of a way to get out of this. And the word here, hired men, mystheos, is a hired worker independent of the household. So this inner dialogue shows that this is where the point of the story turns. A servant would be part of the household and be way better off than a hired worker. Because the hired worker had no particular status. And the hired worker may get some money, get some a meal or something, but had no status. Now let's see how this develops. Verse 18 and 19. Now he's thinking to himself. This is the inner dialogue. I will get up, go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. The center part of this reverse parallel construction. The fact is... And I missed this until this time. This is 12 years later since I preached it, 2009. I looked up some more resources uh, that I've gotten since then. Pharaoh said basically the same thing when he wanted to get rid of the plagues. He might want to jot this down. Exodus 10:16. Exodus 10:16. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called. Remember what happened? The plagues are coming. Okay, I'll repent. Then he does it. Another plague. Okay. And it keeps going. So it gets to this point, Exodus 10, 16. Then Pharaoh hurriedly, hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron and said, here's what he said. I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Very similar. A number of scholars saw that similarity. But in that case, what happened? Did Pharaoh really repent? Or did he want to get rid of the bad circumstances? We know He didn't. Whether that's a planned analogy by Luke, it's here, and many have seen it. Let me quote Bailey about that as well. Um, Here's what he said. The planned opening remark in his speech was carefully selected. Jesus was addressing, says Bailey, a scholarly audience. The sentence is a paraphrase from the mouth of Pharaoh, when he addressed Moses after the first nine plagues. As pressure mounted on Pharaoh to deal with Moses, he finally relented and summoned the prophet and confessed. Then Bailey goes on and says, Everyone knows that Pharaoh was not sincerely repenting. Rather, he was trying to manipulate Moses into serving Pharaoh's interests. Bailey, Cross, and the Prodigal, pages 59 and 60. Others have seen that. I think there's some merit to it. Because when, as we go on, we're going to find out that when the prodigal, as we call him, gets back, he never gets to start the speech. And when he gives it, 
He doesn't finish it. How many people have been raised in Christian homes or had privileges or known what was right and ran away, shamed everybody? And God lets us go. You want to take off and serve Satan, the devil, darkness? It's all out there. We don't live in the same honor or shame society because now people call good evil and evil good. But this is still what many do. How are we ever going to repay the evil we did in dishonoring God? That's the greater problem. So this is the turning point. He's looking for a way to survive. That's, I think that's a good interpretation. Let's look at some cultural considerations. Reparations and atonement were made by the act of repentance. So in that belief, repentance is like a work. You earn your way back. The prodigal intends to do what he has to in order to make up for the money he lost. But what about the honor of his family? How do you make that up? You shamed your entire family. The father, the village, everybody that knew you. How do you get away from that? His idea about how to survive and perhaps repay shows that he has not yet realized that his greatest sin was rejecting his father's love. I hope you know by now that Father is God in Christ reconciling sinners to himself. Every one of us has shamed him. We didn't listen. We didn't care. Went our own way. The 99 righteous don't exist. Everyone's lost. So in their world, the relationship with the father, family, the village is what's important, and that's all gone. But we're going to see a shocking development that illustrates God's love and mercy. Now, as the narrative turns, here's what happens. Luke 15 and verse 20 from the new KJV. And he arose and came to his father. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion. Compassion. The word there is from the word bowel, splagnon. The King James says bowels of compassion sometimes. In their thinking, in their world, the innermost motives were the bowels that had been now expresses compassion. He had compassion and he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The prodigal, the one who shamed the father, shamed the village, shamed his family, wastefully squandered everything in a faraway country to Gentiles, is shown compassion before he said one word. 
God is the one who finds the lost. Christ bore the shame to find lost sinners. Treco, here it's in a different form. It wouldn't sound that way, but it's a heiress active participle. He ran. Now, as others have pointed out, in their world, a nobleman, an elder in the village with status, would not run. Running was for kids. As Bailey has said, he walked in a noble, stately gait that would show his status as an elder, as a nobleman. But he, in order to run, take up part of the robe, take off running. Shameful. Horrible. What's the context? Jesus Christ welcomed sinners and ate with them. They said to Jesus Christ, you are shameful. You're dishonoring our world. You're dishonoring people. And look what's happening. Look who's coming to Jesus. Sinners, tax gatherers, prostitutes, wicked people, dining with him. So he runs. This literally is a word from the races, the stadium. Same word is used in Luke 24, 14, where Peter ran to the empty tomb after hearing the report of the women that it was empty. Peter ran. And it says here, according to the tense in the Greek, he kissed him again and again. He already received the wayward, wicked, dishonorable son before the son did anything but show up at the edge of the village. He had not even made a speech. Now, in a village, you, you might think, well, this isn't very reasonable. Oh, yes, it is. Whoever was the outskirts, the, the word travels quickly. Everybody knows everything. And he knows he's coming. He's there to meet him. There's something that I shared the last time I preached that comes after this in Luke 19.10. And that's, in that case, it had to do with Zacchaeus, who Jesus dined with, tax gatherer. But jot this down in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man, which is Daniel 7, reference to Messiah, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is which was lost. The parable of the lost sheep that, that we saw in Sunday school reminded us that the sheep lays there helpless, lost. The coin, lost. God in Christ takes action, allows himself to be shamed, so that wicked, shameful sinners who deserve nothing, would be found and showed mercy. Let's go to the some of what I've already said, but as reiteration. Cultural considerations. The father ran to the boy. It's considered humiliating and undignified for a Middle East nobleman to run. The public embrace and kiss of the son showed total Unexpected 
and unconditioned grace, mercy, and acceptance. Why would this father ever accept someone like that? It wouldn't be done. It was unheard of. It was unknown. He was dead. We'll see that next week when we do the older brother. Part two of this. You're dead. That's what they thought. The father bore the public shame so his son would be spirited. How? As I said, slow, dignified fashion was how they would normally comport themselves. Here I am. By running out to the lost son at the edge of the village in this manner, the father disgraced himself so that the son would be spared the shame and humiliation that surely awaited him. Why? Because now the elder of the village already took the shame and accepted him. So now what are they going to do? They're not going to do a kazaza ceremony. Because someone far more important had already accepted him. The father searched for the son like the shepherd for the sheep and the woman for the coin, as we saw earlier in Luke 15. We showed that this morning. Here's something I want to state, and this is what some people really don't like, but it's the point. I can't escape it. I don't want to. The only thing the son did was realize he was lost. That's all he did. He knew he was lost. He knew it was hopeless. Once the village nobleman, as I said, was reconciled to his son unilaterally, the rest of the village would have to accept that. In every turn of this story, the father takes the shame to spare his son for it. What's so tragic in Christendom is that this concept seems to have been lost. It seems honorable to be in a church. It seems honorable to have crosses and to be someone important in Christendom. But it doesn't make us any less lost if we don't believe that Christ bore the shame for us. There are as many lost people in Christendom as anywhere else because they have a form of piety but no power of forgiveness and a changed life. Let's go to verse 21. And the son said to him, now he starts the speech. The son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's the beginning of the speech. He did not finish his speech because it would be pointless to say, make me your hired man, because he had already been received as a son. Once you're received as a son, and you have sonship, and you're part of the family, you don't need to be a hired man. Why finish it? He now knows that reconciliation is an unmerited gift from his father. He also knows, as we have on the slide here, 
He knows that assuming that he could pay his father back for what he had done would be an insult. The harm was so great, so damaging, so horrible, that to think you could even start paying it back would dishonor the father even more. No one will ever pay their way into good favor with God. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. Works will never get you there. The world religions all believe in works, even Christendom. I've heard people say, well, I believe in the good Lord because I need all the help I can get. Well, we don't need all the help we can get. We need redemption, atonement, forgiveness, repentance that is only granted by God that he has his means. We're lost sheep that need to be found, not somebody getting a little uh, green grass now and then. Maybe I can make it back to the herd or the flock, as you can call it. Herds are pigs. We had those. We used to let them just run around and eat corn cobs and grub around. And when we shelled corn, there was an area where the pigs could get whatever was in the muck. But the sheep, here's my statement about this. Tax gatherers and sinners knew they were lost. The Pharisees and scribes did not. That's why they were offended that he welcomed lost sinners into table fellowship. And this is a preview, as we'll see next week with the older son, the rest of this, of table fellowship in heaven with the redeemed. Remember, there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. By leaving, make me one of your hired men, of his speech, the son showed a transformed understanding of repentance. Let's look at that a little bit. After acknowledging his son, sin, the only thing to say is, I'm unworthy. That's as far as you need to go with that speech. I'm unworthy. You'll never pay it back. You never buy it back. You never do enough work. His honor comes by being part of the family of God. There's no point seeking honor in this world because it's shameful. He was lost. I want to make a statement about this. The prodigal, that is the one who wasted everything, acknowledged what was always true. He was unworthy. The real sin is the breach of the relationship. It reminds me of a story when I was working, when I was in Bible college, I worked in a department that was kind of locked up downtown at Penny's. They were creating the first charge cards. And I probably told a story how a man I worked for said, somebody like me, what would be the worst sin? And I, well, he did most of them that we knew about. They didn't tell us. And, I, and I didn't, what I said to him was independence from God. He went to confession. He did what the priest said. Tried to do this, tried to do that. I don't know how I even knew this. I was so young in the faith. But the worst sin is you don't want a relationship with God. He made me go back to work. You don't want to hear that one. 
But what about us? Do we want to hear that? Do we want a relationship with God by grace or faith? Or do we want to earn our way back? Let's go to the next, to some applications. Christ endured the shame in order to make us honored sons and daughters. Furthermore, outside of God's grace, we are all shameful lost sinners. Before we go to another slide, right now, think about it. Are you lost? Have you shamed God by not honoring any kind of relationship that he made available in Christ? Have you gone and lived for yourself? Do you think that you can do something to make it all better? That's what the default position is. I'll try something. I'll work harder. I'll be like Pharaoh. Okay, I'll let your people go until it gets a little better. I think I'll go back to being Pharaoh. But Christ endured all the shame that will ever be endured so that we could be honored sons and daughters. And outside of God's grace, we are all shameful, lost sinners. Let's look at Hebrews. Hebrews 2, 10 and 11. This, by the way, is very important to our understanding of 1 Corinthians. The reason I, w- I want to take these two Sundays and go back into Luke is to lay the groundwork for understanding 1 Corinthians, which I'm preaching through. Why don't people understand it? Because we want to figure out who's the better person in the body of Christ. We don't get to decide that. The greatest honor anyone ever had was to be part of the family of God, the people of God. What about you? Are you part or did you earn your way? The father in the parable is God in Christ, reconciled, reconciling sinners to himself. If we can fully understand the significance of the shame honor world that they lived in, that honor was everything and shame was to be avoided at all costs, then this is amazing. Let me read the text, Hebrews 2, 10 and 11. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, which by the means made holy, are all from one father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, sons and daughters of the king. How could the Lord of glory the Holy One, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, the eternal creator, as laid out earlier in Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, who knows no shame in his divine essence, who created the whole world, be born of a virgin, live a sinless life, but then be tortured, mocked, and shed his blood, on a cross, which was how people were shamed. Make it last a long time. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Horrible shaming. And that's why this was done to keep people from insurrection because they didn't want this shame. He bore the shame. 
Why would he want us wretches as his sons and daughters? Because God in Christ reconciles sinners to himself. He came to seek and save the lost. And that's what happens in Luke-Acts. Talk about more of that next week. Christ, the preexistent creator, the king of glory, came into this world and suffered shamefully so he could take us dishonorable sinners and call us his brothers and sisters. No one will believe this other than by faith. Because outside of God's grace, it doesn't register. What would be a greater honor? Gaining a $300 million contract because you're or better at something than somebody else. Buying every friend, building the biggest mansion, thinking about Luke 12. Big everything, friends, everything. How will this money ever run out? Well, sometimes it does. In fact, it usually does. But even if it worked, do you believe there's an eternity? Do you believe there'll be a new heavens and new earth? Do you believe that we're going to have table fellowship with God, the marriage supper of the Lamb? If you don't believe the promises of God, you won't believe it's worth it. No matter how far down people get, they keep trying. Maybe, I know, I'll go to the casino and start putting coins in there. The big one's going to come up and then I'll have money. You know how long that lasts? Gone in no time. It won't work. What about you? Today, the truth is laid out there, and we need to decide one thing. Are we the 99 who need no repentance, or are we the prodigal that deserves nothing, that has been offered everything, not only daily bread, which we pray for in the Lord's Prayer, but eternal honor, in the presence of the angels of God. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's joy before the angels of God for one sinner who repents. Today, if you're not seeing this, I pray that you do. I pray that the Father pricks your heart through the Holy Spirit and you realize you're lost. You believe that Jesus Christ really was raised from the dead, vindicating all his claims. He really did appear to witnesses. He really ascended into heaven before witnesses, and he's coming again. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The reason this truth is rejected and scorned is that dead sinners will not admit they even need to be found. Keep trying. Doesn't work. If we do repent and believe Christ, thus we gain an inheritance that we do not deserve as he laid aside his divine privileges, came and lived in this world, incarnate, came as one who was shamed, mocked and ridiculed, and died a shameful 
death on a cross in order to bestow sonship on those who are lost. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him. He's done it all. One more slide here. Hebrews 12, 2. Title of the slide, the Lord of glory or shame. I hope you see the irony of that. I think it's lost. In church history, if you have enough gold to build a great big huge cross and it costs a lot of money and it's hung on a really big place and it's very glorious, you're saying, well, that's what we got. What else do we need? That is going to get you nowhere. The Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, bore the shame on the cross. It's an executioner's device. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Psalm 110, verse 1. So if there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, if there's a messianic banquet in heaven that awaits those who know him, the sinless Savior bore the shame for wicked sinners who lived horrible, sinless life. Why wouldn't everybody do that? Because they don't believe. I didn't believe. When I was a young man, 20 years old, when I was converted, I didn't believe that. My whole life's ahead of me. I'm going to get an education. I'm going to make money. I'm going to go my own way and party, and I'll be... None of these religious people are going to bug me. Why? Because you don't believe it. I didn't. Do you believe that the joy in heaven, the meditating banquet, is so real that if you really believe that, this eating with the pigs is crazy? We need God. Repent. Believe the gospel. Some say, well, if you call people to repent, then God does it. Why? Because that's the means He ordained. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. One last statement here from 2 Corinthians 5:20. 2 Corinthians 5:20. Paul said this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Next week, we'll see the older son who was offended that the father accepted this wretch. Are we the older son? Or do we know we need to be reconciled to God? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to see things that are so glorious that only faith could make it real to us. And I pray that these facts, these truths will be believed, that today some will believe and be reconciled to you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to find the lost. Thank you for the joy of fellowship. And today I pray that your word would have an impact on us and that even as we know you will live with thankfulness and joy because we're part of your family. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.
Amen.